Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, is most commonly referred to, is the arm of the U.S. government tasked with protecting American interests both domestically and abroad. The CIA states its purpose on their website, and it reads in part this way. To accomplish its mission, the CIA engages in research, development, and deployment of high-level technology for intelligence purposes. As a separate agency, CIA serves as an independent source of analysis on topics of concern and also works closely with the other organizations in the intelligence community to ensure that the intelligence consumer, whether Washington policymaker or battlefield commander, receives the best intelligence possible. As changing global realities have reordered the national security agenda, the CIA has met these challenges by, and then they have several bullet points, but I just want to share this one bullet point. It says that they create special multidisciplinary centers to address such high-priority issues such as non-proliferation, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, international organized crime and narcotics trafficking, environment, and arms control intelligence. Lost in this smokescreen of high-level patriotic hyperbole is the fact that the CIA has a known history of utilizing international organized crime, narcotics trafficking, and arms sales to fund their off-the-record operations. Is that shocking? Well, it shouldn't be. For the overwhelming majority of Americans, it is. Stay tuned for my interview with John Adams for a detailed look at the CIA as drug lord and narco-democracy builders here on the Soaring Eagle Radio Show. Remember that your failure to be informed does not make me a wacko. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things. Of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings. My mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hello, and welcome to Soaring Eagle Radio. Your host is Mike Spaulding. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged as you consider today's news and Mike's commentary from a biblical perspective. Now, let's...
Let's join Mike. Welcome. This is the Soaring Eagle Radio Show. I'm your host, Mike Spaulding. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can listen to us on our website, SoaringEagleRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Soaring Eagle Rad. My guest today is John Adams, and he is returning to Soaring Eagle Radio. John is a host on the popular Drive Time podcast, Afternoon Commute Hoaxbusters, and is a cultural researcher and commentator. Welcome, John, to the Soaring Eagle Radio Show. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing very well, John. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. Pleasure to talk with you as well. John, I mentioned to you many times before, but I, I want to give you a shout-out uh, on the show. I very much appreciate you and Chris's show and, and the insights that uh, that you bring to topics that, for the most part, escape notice in American culture. And, and I think our topic today is one of those areas. When I say that the so-called war on drugs is a near-total sham, I, I, I want to say it's a complete sham, but I'll I'll leave a little bit of room there. Some folks might object to that by suggesting that we spend billions of dollars in drug awareness, education, law enforcement, and incarceration of offenders, and and that this is somehow evidence that America is fighting a bona fide war on drugs. But I have the uh, opinion that this is merely window dressing for what's really going on behind the scenes. Uh, well, yeah, it absolutely is window dressing. If you want to take it all the way back, uh, the war on drugs is actually a war of drugs. And the war of drugs even goes back into the opium wars with China. Uh, the same families who were involved with those opium wars uh ended up being some of the families involved with the Skull and Bone Society at Yale, uh, the, the Delanos, the Russells, people who started that society at Yale, which in turn, the, that society supplied a lot of the uh, people who ended up being in the intelligence agencies like the OSS and the CIA. So connecting drug running and intelligence agencies is literally nothing new. And when you move it down into the modern day, I mean, just think of all of think of all of the programs that have uh, been given to us. Like, like, take for instance, uh, out here in California, when I was growing up, we had something called the Dare program. That yes, drug drug abuse re, rehabil- drug abuse. Uh, Rehabilitation education, or something like that. I can't yeah. remember what, it, what what the acronym was for, but yeah, maybe it, drug uh, awareness. Oh, drug awareness, right? Yeah. And and um, what that was successful in doing is, uh, unbeknownst to I'm sure uh, good good police officers who who would come around and you know, thought thought they were you know, doing a public service and that type of stuff, I'm sure unbeknownst to them, they were actually introducing children to drugs. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so, the, yeah, that's what it did. They, they would come around to uh, your uh, school. They would show you what a joint looks like. They would show you what cocaine and heroin look like. Yes. And uh, there you go. You're being introduced into the drug culture. Now, we have a drug culture... Our, our entire world culture is a drug culture now. Yes. And 
because most people are reliant on some form of drug already. That's yes, that's right. Yeah. Many people are reliant on, uh, to get through their day on psychotropic drugs, mm-hmm. which psychotropic is pretty much psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was through the proliferation and the cultural change that was the psychedelic era, which wasn't even very long, pretty much uh, over a five-year time span. Yes. That the quote-unquote psychedelic era even existed, but mm-hmm. just was able to shift culture entirely. Yes. And whether or not you physically participated in the drug culture of the 60s, your worldview was affected by it, and you yourself were affected by it, whether you took drugs or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just yeah. by you living through that and being exposed to that, you became more permissive in a sense. We yes. all we all did. Yeah. And it got passed down uh, from generation to generation. If you want a good example, uh, a good example is my parents. Uh, my mother uh, has never touched a drug in her life, uh, at least a an illegal narcotic drug. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, you know, she said maybe once you went to a party where they might have smoking some pot. (laughs) (laughs) And and then on the opposite end, that is my father, who uh, was what what you would call in the uh, classical terminology a stoner. Uh, luckily for him, he became a Christian in 1975 and stopped doing all that and never touched it ever again. Yeah. But both of them were affected by that culture and were changed by that culture and, and like I said, became more permissive because there was a lot of things within culture. And I'll, I'll give a perfect example is you tend to look at the, at the, uh, overt bad things like, like take, take music for example. You tend to look at something that is overtly satanic, right? Yes. Some heavy metal or some you know a lot of a lot of the pop stars today are overtly satanic and uh, engage in a lot of uh, openly uh, satanic or cabalistic rituals on on stage as they perform. Right. Yes. But see that is overtly out there, you can recognize that and you can say, okay, I am not going to ever let my uh, daughter listen to Lady Gaga or listen to, uh, you know, some heavy metal, death metal band or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like that. Yeah. But see, there is a much more insidious thing is, is, is a dialectical process. Is you say, you, you do that, but then you say, you know what's okay? It's okay to listen to this old music that I grew up with. And the old music that you grew up with is probably because it comes, uh, you know, veiled in this idea of, of love or, or whatever it may be. The, mm-hmm. the lyrics and, and uh, everything about it is changing you yes. as you're listening to it. And, and even though you don't identify it as that, you're being moved to the culture. So, so drugs... That's how drugs were, were moved through the culture. It became because it became so um, prominent yes. that the background, the the cultural wallpaper, mm-hmm. if you may, yeah. Uh, at, at a certain level, people were were okay with it by uh, say the 1980s. Yes. Yeah. 
she came half day. Yeah. There, there, there's a very famous song from uh, the 1990s when I was a teenager, and it was the the lyrics. It was a, by a band called the, the Dandy Warhols. And the lyrics are "Heroin is so passe." <laughs> mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example. I I can think of another one, John, that, that uh, speaks to exactly what you've been saying um, here and uh, uh, insofar as music was used and still is used uh, as a vehicle for uh, changing people's minds and perceptions, whether they understand it or not. Uh, it is the dialectic uh, uh, process being engaged. Uh, on Wednesday nights, currently, I'm... I'm uh, uh, teaching through a series on on yoga and the the Eastern uh, religious and philosophical foundations uh, of yoga and and what it really is and as part of that we've examined uh, the history of its introduction into the West and and how the Beatles were were used uh, to a large degree to to introduce that as well as the psychedelic drug culture and they did that through music and, and if you go back and you listen to some of that music um, today many years later the meaning is is pretty clear what the message was but at the time we would just recite the songs and sing along with them I mean I grew up in the 60s so uh, didn't think a lot about it and sang those songs and and didn't realize exactly what the message was and that's part of what you're saying here is that uh, our minds and perceptions are changed even when we don't realize it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, like you're talking about yoga, yoga, the way that it was introduced into the West, it, it's not even introduced in its proper form. Um, and it's usually accompanied by uh, music and or some sort of uh, chanting or rhythmic. Yes. Uh, if, you, if you were to go to a yoga studio, they would have music playing. And that's not how you do it right. in the traditional Eastern form, mm-hmm. and and um, so yeah, it's a very pop. That, that that's the thing. A lot a lot of this stuff is uh, when it was introduced in the fifties, especially with Eastern religions and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we actually spoke with a uh, professor uh, from uh, his name was Andrei Zinamansky, and on one of our talks, we talked to him about the Tibetan form of form of Buddhism mm-hmm. that it is introduced into the West and it has nothing to do with it's more of a pop form of Buddhism that that, that people have here in the West yes. and and so what that is is they, they know that, that when you bring something into a culture and when I say they I mean the people who control cultures They're, they are cultural creators yes and they will implement something that is the most foreign thing that you could possibly think of. Because it must counter, it must be an absolute opposite to something uh, that you could think of. So if you think of America in the 1950s and the early part of the 60s, uh, something like uh, Indian classical music and Indian culture is probably the most far removed thing from what you would think the nuclear family was. Right. And it's and and there's there's a lot of stuff. Uh, it, it would probably be a much be a much longer conversation if I was able to get to the particulars of that. Yeah. But 
but you, you see, what was happening at that time, especially with rock and roll music, mm-hmm. and, and dr- drugs play a part in that too, is is as the culture was shifting, there was new things being introduced that separated the children from the adults. Yes, and there was direct there was direct marketing to what we call teenagers. Mm-hmm. Teens, the word the word teenager did not exist. We, we use the word teenager very regularly. There was no such thing as a teenager before uh, the, the late 1940s. Yes, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that word was used on purpose to separate uh, adults from children and to directly market a teenage culture yes. to people from the age of 13 to 19. Mm-hmm. And... Once you get into the 1960s, they break it off even further to where now you have people so wrapped up in teenage and, you know, what later became young adult, another uh, marketing term. Yes. Uh, Once they were able to totally shift that, now you're into stuff that is so foreign to your parents. Mm -hmm. Your parents are either going to do one thing, they're going to get really mad and, and then you will, in turn, it, create, it creates a uh, crisis in your family, a, uh, uh, you know, it creates a tumultuous relationship between you and your parents. Mm-hmm. Or they just don't even know what to do. They think you're from, you know, Planet Pop-Tart. Yeah. <laughs> so they just reject it all together, and they just say, you know what, He's gonna, he or she is going to do what it is they're going to do, because I don't even understand them. Yes. And so... So one of the things that was uh, played a prominent role in this was was when they were introducing, um, you know, uh, not you know, marijuana has been around forever. Yeah. But when they were in- introducing it into American culture as something that was, uh, you know, popularized and generally known, uh, you know, they introduced a lot of uh, catchphrases and and uh, cultural memes. Yes. Like, you know, don't trust anyone over 30. Right. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was all about being young. It was all about being modern. That was another word that was introduced in the late 1950s was young modern. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you always had to be modern. You always had to be up to date. And anybody who wasn't up to date was old fashioned. That was another word that was introduced mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to be old fashioned. You want to be, you wanted to be hit. And <laughs> the word hit. In and of itself, which tra- which transmutated into hippie. Yes. Do you know what the origin of the word hip is, Mike? No. What is it, John? It comes from the jazz age of the 1920s. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we still use the word hip today because a lot of millennials have been referred to as hipsters. That's right. Yeah. Right. But see, the word hipster actually used to mean somebody who smoked opium. Okay. No kidding. And, yeah, back in the 1920s, because a hipster, you see, in order to smoke opium, you lay down on your side on, and you smoke an opium pipe laying down on your hip. Mm. So somebody who was a hipster was somebody who smoked opium. Wow, that's a very interesting. Very interesting. I've, clearly, the the folks, the millennials and others today, Christians especially, who who think that uh, they're being cool by referring to themselves as hipsters, have no 
clue the origin of that word. A lot of people don't, and like I said, hippie, uh, hippie derives from it as well. So. Yeah. So, so, so drugs were introduced, John, back in the 50s, uh, late 50s or early 60s to the, to the youth culture predominantly. But research and development, and that may sound strange to describe it that way, but that's exactly what was going on in, even in the 40s, wasn't it? Research and development of these uh, psychotic, psychedelic drugs. And, and if I might add one other thing, and then I'll let you comment, John. It's my understanding that the CIA, when they understood uh, or, or thought they understood uh, the value of uh, drugs such as uh, LSD, saw that as a tool that they could use in uh, in their intelligence gathering, didn't they? Absolutely. Um, we just, on, on the afternoon commute at com. we just interviewed Jan Irvin the other day. Mm-hmm. And Jan, Ir- Jan Irvin's a researcher. He's wrote multiple articles, including a very good one called Manufacturing the Deadhead. He also wrote another one called uh, Entheogens, What's in a Name? And he wrote another one that we uh, recently interviewed him about that was called Spies in Academic Clothing. And these are all 70-plus page uh, academic articles that he's, he's gone through, and he's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I, I mean, like I, said, like I said in the interview with him, if you go listen to that, I already knew a lot of this stuff myself, but it's always nice to have uh, somebody uh, cooperate. Yes, that's right. And and, and those yeah. episodes are available on the Hooksbusters um, website, John. That's correct. And 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 see, the thing is, there is absolutely no doubt for anybody who's done any real research into it. Uh, I mean, just think of it offhand. Let me just ask you this question, real real quick, Mike. Okay. So the L- so the CIA knows about LSD, right? Mm-hmm. That they that they'll admit, and you can watch that on History Channel. Yeah. Uh, but it just accidentally got out into the pop general population <laughs> and, and yeah. proliferated, and and the drug culture just accidentally through <laughs> a you know through a grassroots movement proliferated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're supposed to believe that, I guess. Right. Yeah. That's what that, that that's the story we've been given. That uh, the, the the phrase I like to use is that the LS, you know, the CIA slipped on a banana peel, found LSD underneath <laughs> it, and whoops daisy, it accidentally got out into the general population. Yeah. It just doesn't happen that way when you actually think about uh, how things happen. It just doesn't work. It it doesn't so, work. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 we know the facts and the history. Hopefully, you'll you'll give our listeners some some references as to books that you've read and researched, John, as as we discuss this today. But I want to give them one right now that that I've been reading, and it's a it, it's a real eye opener. I know you're familiar with it because I believe that I heard it, I heard you mention this title on one of your uh, one of your episodes on Hooksbusters. But uh, the 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 book is called Acid Dreams. The Complete Social History of LSD, the CIA, the 60s, and Beyond. And the authors are Martin Lee and Bruce Shillane. You're familiar with this book, aren't you, John? Yes, I am. And I will say that it, when it comes to whitewashing the entire LSD-CIA thing, 
it does provide you with a lot of information, but that book is a total whitewash. Yeah. Um, like I said, you can glean a lot of good information yes, from it. Yes, historical um, data, yeah. But yes, if you were looking for some, for some truthful account of how it is, when, when I say that, when I uh, use that phrase, the LSD slipped on a banana peel and ripped the daisy, it accidentally <laughs> got out, I'm actually thinking of the book Acid Dreams, because yeah. that's pretty much that's, the... That's their that's argument. Yeah, that's what they promote in it. But, I, I, like I said, I read that book many, many years ago, and the first thing I thought is this book is a bunch of hogwash, <laughs> but I sure did learn a lot from it. So, yes, yes. So, yes, I I would say um, there's, there's not, if you're looking for actual books, there's not really any I can technically recommend it anymore. Um, but I can recommend that you go check out uh, Jan Irving's article, Manufacturing the Deadhead, and that is a great article. Or you can go look at uh, Dave McGowan's uh, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, The Birth of the Hippie Movement and the Dark Art of a Hippie Dream, I think it's called. Weird Scenes in the Canyon? Yeah, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. It's, it's basically uh, the story of, of Laurel Canyon and how... Uh, how a lot of the uh, people who were these hippie icons were actually connected to military intelligence. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, now, you're not yeah, talking. Like, you're not talking Jerry Rubin or Abby Hoffman. Well, or are you? Well, Jerry, 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 Jerry Rubin, just in himself. I mean, what did he end up becoming? A Wall Street stockbroker. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I mean, well, there you go. That right there. But but yeah, uh, if you, I mean, just one example. That that's Dave McGowan's research. We've interviewed Dave McGowan. You can hear that on our Hoaxbusters call. But mm-hmm. um, but uh, just just one mention. You know, uh, yeah. Jim Morrison. His dad was the uh, was Admiral Stephen Morrison. And, he was actually the captain of the uh, ship that was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Really? So you ha- you have to ask yourself a question that, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin inc- incident has turned out to be completely and totally fake. Yes, that's nothing right. Even, yeah. Nothing right. even happened. Yeah, nothing even happened there at all. So It was just a pretext, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a reason to, yep. to be able to go into Vietnam. Yep. But you're you're telling me that the guy who who was running the ship for this big fake event that was used to get us into the Vietnam War, it was okay for his son to be running around as the top hippie icon of the day, the the icon of the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sounds a little fishy. Yeah. Plus, you never ever hear about the fact that Jim Morrison's dad was <laughs> Admiral Stephen Morrison. That's right. It's something that's kind of hidden way back in the history book. So, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of people like that where you would never know about it. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody from Frank Zappa to John Phillips to the Mamas and the Papas, they all come from military intelligence families. Very strange. Very strange. Way too many of it for, for uh, to be a coincidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned Dave McGowan's resources as well as John Irving. So, uh, listeners, I'd make uh, make use of those and follow and check out those resources. So it was no accident. It was no accident that the drugs were introduced. Then, John, where did it go from there? Well, basically, if you go back into the 1950s, uh, even before that, like I was saying, in the jazz age, they introduced opium into the culture through yeah. the jazz age, the jazz movement, 
jazz was the vehicle of the day. Mm. Um, and there's all sorts of things. There, there's all sorts of things we could digress off into just in analyzing jazz. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about the Beats and Harlem and all that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Back, you know, back in the big band era. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, just the just the rhythm. The you know, there's all sorts of uh, psychological implications with the rhythm of jazz. It's very it's very freeing to the mm-hmm. mind. It's very uh, psychologically uh, produces a a very free feeling because it's a very free flowing. It's um, improvisational, mm-hmm. yeah, in its form. It's syncop- It's got a syncopated rhythm, um, mm-hmm. and this does things to you psychologically. There's a lot yeah. of uh, research uh, that I've read about that. It's mm-hmm. very hard to articulate it though. But um, uh, so that was a. That was a vehicle. Uh, you, you think about the popular songs of the days, uh, Cole Porter, which Cole mm-hmm. Porter in it, Cole Porter went to Yale, and he was a member of the Scroll and Key Society, which is the other society there at Yale besides Skull and Bones. And he wrote a song called "Anything Goes." Yes. He also wrote a song called "Let's Do It." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And. It, I mean, everybody knows what "Let's Do It" meant. They they yeah. used to know what "Let's Do It" meant back in the twenties as well. Sure. So, so these were very uh, quote unquote free times. Uh, that was all being promoted: free love, mini mm-hmm. skirts. Sound yep. familiar? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so so they they tried it. They tried it out in the twenties, um, and then uh, there's. There's all sorts of digression we could talk about when we move up into World War II, mm-hmm. um, but we, we won't talk about that. Post-World War II, you have uh, a generation of people who are raised in affluence, mm-hmm. and so you have a lot of uh, uh, what you would call, you know, what the uh, communists like call the bourgeois, yeah. the upper class, you know, the upper middle class or something like that. Yeah. And so... Um, so then you have the, the beat generation, the beats, and all that type of stuff. It, like mm-hmm. I said, if you go look at the information, Greenwich Village in New York was yes. basically being run by the CIA mm, as yeah. a laboratory yes. for for testing out the jazz culture, mm-hmm. the, uh, and then slowly but surely introducing the LSD into it and the and the psychedelic. Yeah. yeah. Like I said. Heroin and jazz has been are synonymous with each other since the inception. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, but it was not it was not to the point in our culture to where the person who would casually listen to a Charlie Parker record was going to then go start doing heroin. That was not how it was. That's not how it worked. Right. But once you get into the 1960s, you have this culture, you have this group of, of youths who have been molded to emulate everything that their idols do. Yes. Right? Yep, that's right. And, and that's how that's how we've all been molded today, on down into the present time, is, is you want to have the sunglasses like, you know, the hip-hop rapper, the con- you know, yeah. I want to wear shoes like Kanye West, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is how we've been molded since that time period. Yeah. And also, if your fa- your uh, favorite rock, rap star or rock star is, is a pot smoker, then you're going to be a pot smoker, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it was the same thing with the drug culture in the 60s. And 
it's interesting because if you go behind the scenes, what you are going to find is you're going to find a whole lot of psychologists, psych, uh, psychiatrists, anthropologists, and these are the people who are coming up with all the ideas, and a lot of it centered around the MK Ultra program. And the MK Ultra program has, you know, through movies and fiction and all that, it's been, kind of been sold to us as this, this, pro, this project that was, you know, all about creating uh, mind-controlled soldiers who are going to go, you know, get a phone call and then they're going to go shoot somebody. Right, right. That's not, turns out that's not really the case. Now, some people might argue that. They might say, well, yeah, look at all, I, I think that there's mind control killers used in these shootings today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The only problem is, is most of these shootings today turn out to be fake. Right. So you wouldn't need a mind controlled soldier to go shoot anybody. Mm. <laughs> right. You just need an actor to pretend to shoot somebody. That's right. basically uh, what you find out when you do a lot of the research. But here's the thing. MKUltra was a project on how to get people in the general population of America and then, you know, essentially much later worldwide, how to create a drug culture where you are dependent on drugs. You are always using drugs. Drugs are going to be your go-to thing to alleviate your pain. Yeah. Um, how are we going to shift culture? How are we going to change culture? How are we going to overthrow all the old values and mm -hmm. bring in all the new values? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've got, I've got a little quote here. There, there was um, a lady, she was very famous, and I think even the last time I was on uh, with you, I, I read another quote from one of her books. Her name is Margaret Mead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Margaret Mead was married to Gregory Bateson, and Gregory Bateson, it's well, I mean, it's well known. He he was in the MKUltra project, as as well as being one of the inventors of cybernetics. Really? Mm. Yes. And so Margaret Mead was married to him. She wrote a little book. It's it's pretty well known. It's called A Study of the Generation Gap. I think it should be titled A Study of the Manufactured generation gap yeah yeah um because that's what they were doing how would you even know that there was a generation gap until margaret mead told you so that's right yeah, yeah. Here, here's an interesting here, here there's some interesting little quotes in here and you have to find them curious knowing that margaret mead herself is a culture creator a cultural manipulator and basically margaret mead's job was to study indigenous cultures and uh chill for UNESCO and try to figure out ways to uh, gradually put things into indigenous cultures that weren't there before. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you used a lot of those studies to figure out how to do that to the West as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's what she says on page 55 of her book, Culture and Commitment, A Study of the Generation Gap. It says... It can also occur when conquered populations are required to learn the language and ways of the conqueror, when adults adopt a new religion and teach children new ideals that they themselves never experienced as children and adolescents. Or it may happen as a purposeful step in a revolution that establishes itself through the introduction of new and different lifestyles hmm. for the young. The yeah. conditions for change to a configurative type of culture becomes increasingly common as civilization becomes more advanced, as availability of greater material power made it possible for the members of one society to conquer, enslave, or change the beliefs 
of other societies and to control or direct the behavior of the younger generation. Wow. Often, however, configuration as a style lasts only for a short period. In situations which the cultural style of the most powerful group is basically post-figurative, members of a conquered group may have had no certain models except their peers, and their lifestyle may be configurative. Yet their children may be completely assimilated into a different but still wholly post-figurative culture, like the children born into the, co- the cooperative con- communities of Israel, for example. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the kibbutzim. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah. but see, what the point I was making about reading that was that lady and the people that she works with, they fully understand how to manipulate behavior and culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and then you find out that her husband works on the MKL for mind control projects. Hmm. Yeah. So it, it's so it's very strange that you have all these people who have all this advanced knowledge of how to control and manipulate cultures and behavior, mm-hmm. and they are also studying the effects of psychedelic drugs on people yes. and doing all sorts of weird and bizarre tests to uh, see how people uh, react to psychedelics. Yes. Clearly it was a, a central component of their research then, wasn't it? Absolutely. It's not anything that that, they, that could have slipped past them. Whoops, we, oh, we missed that one, that LSD yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the same thing uh, could apply, and this is this has been um, something that the government has denied for a, for a long time, John. But uh, the CIA, it is my opinion, based on the research that that uh, that I've read and looked at, is that uh, the CIA is directly responsible for introducing um, cocaine, crack cocaine, and and heroin into the the black communities uh, of Southern California, predominantly Los Angeles, and uh, they used uh, the the gangs in the in the 60s to do that, uh, the Crips and the Bloods, and they were they were selling drugs to the gangs, and and it uh, anyway, it's a long and sordid history, and I wonder if you could if you could comment on that from what you you've discovered in your research. Um, it's not just a, a fantasy that the black community has has invented when they are pointing fingers at the U.S. government and s- specifically the CIA to say you did this to us. Yeah, that came out long long time ago. If you believe uh, the testimonies of uh, the interviews you can find of Freeway Ricky Ross, yes, uh, he was the biggest crack cocaine dealer in Los Angeles in the 1980s. Yeah, I I do have a friend who. Uh, he's, he's a much older uh, black gentleman, and he said that his brother was a uh, crackhead and that he actually used to hang out at Freeway Ricky Ross's house. Hmm. That's what he tells me. I, yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I just, yeah. that's what I heard. So yeah. I know that I know for a fact that um, that he did exist, and that is his story, and that he went to jail and all that stuff. But um, uh, allegedly, he did not. He was not aware that he was actually doing the dirty work of the CIA hmm. at the time. Um, but yeah, that, that's what he. That's what he says. He yeah. says he he was he was just a dealer, and um, which that could be true. Sure. That, 
that could quite possibly be true. Yeah. The, con- the connection and the cooperation was made through a series of articles that were written by a reporter from the, uh, I'm going off memory here, I, yeah. I haven't looked into that stuff in a, quite a while, but uh, a reporter by the name of uh, Gary Webb. Yes, yeah, I, I yeah, recall yeah, that name, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote a book many years ago that I read many years ago called Dark Majesty. Yes, yeah. And I I don't watch movies anymore, but I believe they made a movie out of this guy's life yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah, that's something. Let's see, is uh, did he write something Dark Alliance too? John, yeah, does that sound familiar? Yeah, Dark Dark Alliance was the name of the article that he. Was okay, writing. okay, yeah. Now, interesting about uh, Gary Webb, he allegedly committed suicide, right? Yeah, allegedly. Allegedly, that whole thing was there where he uh, shot himself twice in the head with a shotgun. Yes. Um, I I don't know about that whole situation, but mm-hmm. what I do know is I, I read that book, and it's basically corroborating separately what Ricky Ross was saying with uh, the connections from the CIA through you know uh, Nicaragua and Colombia, mm-hmm. uh, making sure all of the cocaine got over here and then you know there's there's been stories from for years for years and years about uh how they would drop off uh brochures or uh flyers into the ghettos yes on how to make crack mm-hmm. yeah. that they would uh, that uh so that's been around a long time and like i said i my, my friend who's much older than me and lived through that era said uh, that yeah that was actually true. You could find flyers and brochures about how to make crack cocaine. I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't put it past anybody. And yeah. like you said, the, gang, the gangs were the movers and the shakers of all that type of stuff. Yeah. Pretty much always have been. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting, and you mentioned uh, uh, Nicaragua and, and Colombia. What's, what's the connection there? What I'm asking is those countries, and uh, especially early on, uh, Honduras, from from what I've read, uh, the 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 nation of Honduras was utilized in uh, the CIA's drug trafficking schemes, and I believe Nicaragua and Colombia were also utilized um, as as drug trafficking and and uh, uh, arms sales, weren't they? Right. Once again, you have the players of the skull and bone. You have you know George H. W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have another Yaley who was an Oxford uh, Rhodes Scholar, was Bill Clinton. Yeah. You have all that being run out of Mena, Arkansas, that's well documented. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you have those those two guys uh, knee-deep in, in uh, drugs. Like I said, it, it you know carried over from the same old uh, British Empire running it mm-hmm. way back when. Yeah. And... And, and like like I said, like the research has been out there for years. It's yeah. really easy to find that stuff. But but one thing that I, I would like to bring light to is that Iran Contra and the stuff that you hear about Fast and Furious and all that type yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I, I think those are distractionary uh, things. Really, I, I think really. The only, the, yeah, I, I think the only reason you hear about those things at all is because it's to take you off of the fact that that the drugs are meant for you. Hmm. The drugs are meant for your culture. Hmm. The drugs are hmm. meant for your country. 
So the so, media, so the media is trying to incite us then to be outraged at this clandestine uh, arms sale and forget the fact that the drugs are being dumped in America. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, look at look at the parallels of the Fast and Furious and Iran Contra. They're almost the same story, just true. recycled. Yeah, that's true. It's a, it's a totally recycled story, and and they they do that so often. So so often you get the same scandal, and you're thinking to yourself. Like, didn't this happen? In, I mean, they're trying to make <laughs> yeah. a new fake Cold War with Russia, and you're thinking, we we just had a Cold War with Russia in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, doesn't anybody remember this? But see, everybody yeah. has such a, has a short memory. Mm-hmm. They don't remember all of these uh, scandals. So, so I think they're manufactured scandals, and mm-hmm. once again, the purpose is to get you off of the, you know, no one, you know, everybody's going to be up in arms over, you know, uh, some gun running going on in mm-hmm. Mexico or, mm-hmm. you know, selling AK-47s to Iran back in the 80s. Yeah. And you're so focused on that, you don't even realize that that the drugs are being distributed all over and, and it's even furthering the drug culture. Yeah, yeah. The media has become a, a master at the sleight of hand, haven't they? Yeah, they always were. I mean, for the most part, um, but... You know, you have to ask yourself, I mean, is it mastery or is it because we're becoming dumber? <laughs> well, it would be one thing to say, man, the media is getting smarter, but it's actually the opposite. Yeah. It's actually, we're, we're getting, and, and, you know, the thing of it is, is actually humans are not dumb. We, we are not dumb. It's just, we are we are really smart at stuff that we shouldn't be smart about. It's like when I, when I have a conversation with someone at work Mm -hmm. and I think to myself that, you know, it's really sad that this guy doesn't even know anything about reality at all. But yet, yet he knows all of the sports scores from the previous day. (laughs) He knows all the statistics. Yep. He knows, you know, what Kobe, what, uh, Kobe Bryant's uh, favorite, you know, bath soap is. <laughs> but he doesn't know anything about reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, he, he's a smart, he's a smart guy. The general, the general person out there, but they know a lot about stuff that doesn't even matter. So we really are living in a matrix. It appears. You see that? That's well. You have to ask yourself. I mean, what what is your reality? Yeah. Is your reality the the fake uh, the fake uh, bling bling reality the mm-hmm. the the projected reality out into uh, you know I mean if you think about it our our reality is becoming meshed with meshed with technology mm-hmm. even right. in, in in our mindscape you yeah. see it has to do it has to do with the scape of the mind yeah. it has, it, good point you know um i'd say uh i'd say for a good portion of of people spend a lot of their time inside uh inside technology because mm-hmm. they're looking at their phones they're watching television they're watching films mm-hmm. and that in and of itself is a entirely different world altogether. It's not reality. It's not being outside. It's not you know seeing a tree. You're gonna you're gonna see trees on on a screen in a movie. Mm-hmm. 
You've been talking to Jay Dyer a lot, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we have had some interesting conversations, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, because the, the whole time you're 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 uh, describing that, I'm thinking uh, Tron. Um, any number of movies come to mind that, but really, is it is it because we've become so steeped in materialism that we're apathetic to anything that doesn't meet these new uh, created needs that uh, have been placed in our mind by other people and i guess that's a that's a philosophical way of saying we're actually frogs in a pot boiling to death aren't we yeah there there is a positive outlook that we can have about this it's it's not anything that that um that you have to be upset about i mean maybe maybe you can't help it you're going to get upset and depressed uh, for a minute, but you can get over it real quickly mm-hmm. because what you have to come to terms with is that you becoming an individual and learning about individualism mm-hmm. and and that in and of itself can be dangerous uh, and I would caution against uh, tra- what what I would call transhumanist uh, individualism mm-hmm. yeah um because a lot of that gets pushed, you know, a lot of uh, individualism is being pushed in a very uh, Luciferian aspect as well. Yeah. But um, but yes, you, you need to break as much as as much as the old cultures were overthrown, and I didn't agree with those old cultures. I don't agree with the new culture either. Right. You see, and that's what we have to realize. We have to realize that when they were overthrowing the old ideas, well, the old ideas, they weren't that great. But that doesn't mean just because you overthrow the old idea that the new idea is is the best thing for you either. Mm-hmm. So one of, one of the best things you can do is you can say no, no to the TV, you could say no to the movies, mm-hmm. say no to the smartphones and all that stuff. And, I mean, it's not... It's not bad to embrace aspects of technology, but you can't just embrace it blindly and just say this is good. Yeah, you need to be you need to be cautious with it. It's, yes. it's like um, it's it's like a, a knife or a gun. I mean, you don't take the knife or the gun out and play with it. You only use it when you need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good points. John. Uh, there is a book that I just recently found out about. It's called Expanded Cinema. It was written in the 1970s, and it was by a gentleman by the name of Gene Youngblood. He writes in here, and he says, television's scientific invention has accelerated the process of freeing humanity from its slave complex to an extraordinary degree. The young realize, as their elders do not, that humanity can do and can afford to do anything it needs to that it knows how to do. Those who ignorantly think of themselves as well-to-do conservative elite are in fact so slave-complex that they are shocked when the younger generation throws aside their clothes and the cars of the distinction and abandoning their make-believe mansions, which are their old conquerors' castles, congregate in hundreds of thousands and shameless innocent bands on vast beaches and meadows. It is not an unspannable generation gap that has occurred, but an emancipation of youth from yesterday's slave-complex reflex. This has been brought about solely by the proliferation of knowledge. The medium is the message, is the message only of yesterday's middle-class elite. It said, never mind the mind, it's the body that counts. It's the physical that can be possessed. Mm -hmm. 
to hell with the metaphysical. Mm-hmm. You can possess the, a physical brain, but not the universally free mind and thoughts. Leave that to the intellectuals. Now, see, once again, what, what I was reading that for was to point out that I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But what, but that, that's what, that's what uh, is given to us, yeah. is, is you either, you either uh, agree with the old culture or you agree with the new culture that's coming in, mm-hmm. and those are the dialectical opposites that you are given to believe in. You, you have to pick a side. Right, but see, I don't pick a side. I, I don't. Right. I don't buy into either of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and that's what we need to do. You can't. You can't go back and say, "Hey, the nuclear family is a great thing." <laughs> you see, mm-hmm. because the nuclear family, in and of itself, was a creation mm-hmm. to to uh, to destroy the idea of the extended family. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when people hearken back to the idea of that, they're they're really pining for something that was that was given to them in the first place to uh, break off the idea of larger family. Yes, and just for the sake of our listeners, John, you 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 mentioned extended family and nuclear family. W- would you describe what you mean by those terms? I, I understand what you're saying, but I want our listeners to fully grasp what you just said. It's very important. Sure. Yeah, the extended family is uh, when families. Prior to, I'd say, World War II, uh, you know, everybody helped raise the children, mm-hmm. uh, the grandparents, yeah. uh, sometimes aunts and uncles. Uh, the family lived in close proximity to each other. Yeah. And then by the time the 1950s came out, they, uh, the cultural creators changed the culture to where uh, people were centered more around, uh, they were centered more around of a corporate uh, type living scape where you know you moved out for your for the sake of your job you moved somewhere um, or for whatever reason you moved mm-hmm. away from your extended family you moved mm-hmm. to another state mm-hmm. and you basically kept kept it down to about three children yes at so, the most so so instead and, of the extended well, family it became mom dad and the children without any outside family members that's, that's yeah. right and, and and the amount of children came down in size as well because people yes. uh like we talked about last time people used to have you know six seven children yes. now, it was no big deal and mm-hmm. by the time the 1960s came in people were having three or less that's right and that's where we are today yes and you were seen as some kind of oddity if you desired to have more than the two or three children if you had more than two or three children, they'd, they'd want to know, were you Mormon or Catholic, or oh, what, yes. what's your... <laughs> oh, yes, yes, that, that would always come into play. I, like I said, I'm, I'm one of five, and so even in the 1990s, people were asking me if I was Mormon and ca- or Catholic, mm-hmm. and I would be, uh, no, I'm neither, but uh, just have a big family, and I'm like, it's not even that big. Right, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well... John, give our listeners the website where they can go and listen to to you and Chris and, and your uh, afternoon commute uh, hoaxbusters calls. Sure, uh, it's at hoaxbusterscall.com. That's hoaxbusterscall.com. Uh, Chris, that's Chris Kendall's website. That's not my website. Um, but if you want to get in contact with me, you can contact Chris at. Uh, at Hoaxbusters there, and he'll relay the message to me, I'm sure. 
Um, but yeah, we do a weekly uh, show. It's called uh, The Afternoon Commute. Mm-hmm. And Chris and I get together. We interview different people uh, from all different uh, viewpoints. And sometimes Tim and I just have a conversation on our own and yeah. talk about different things. But, uh, but yeah, check it out. You can check out past episodes as well. We have a lot of interesting stuff and we've been doing it for almost about two almost two years now so mm-hmm. there's a lot of material there and uh it mainly centers around uh c- culture and cultural changes and uh psychology anthropology a lot of uh things along those lines yeah. and it's basically just anything chris and i find interesting yes yeah very very good uh, uh podcast i listened to it uh, myself and uh, they interview some very interesting guests and in fact I even like it when uh, when when Chris just calls people up to ask them questions about things and kind of puts them on the spot and they don't know how to answer. <laughs> uh, those are those are great. I, I love that. Yeah. I, yeah. I always encourage him encourage him to do that. <laughs> well, John, it's been uh, it's been another great uh, chat with you. I appreciate you taking the time to to join me here and and we'll loop around and and try to schedule another one uh, in the not too distant future if that's okay with you absolutely can i leave you with a quote absolutely please do okay this is from a book it's called the making of a counterculture it's by a uh, guy named theodore rozak who is a graduate of ucla in princeton and he says here in this book, it was written in 1967 or 68, he says, Within a wider context, the quest of the young for psychedelic adventures begins to look like the symptom of a much larger social development in which their rejected elders participate. The fact is, our society is well on its way toward becoming distressingly drug-dependent. Mm. The reliance on chemical agents to control the various functions of the organism is now a standard feature of what we regard as health. That's that's very very true, very true. He was making he was making that observation in 1967. Wow. And and even though I don't agree with everything Mr. Rozak talks about, uh, because he's more of a acolyte of the Frankfurt School, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's the same thing with a lot of the Frankfurt School guys. Uh, they they talk about a lot of stuff that I. I agree with, mm-hmm. but I don't agree with their overall viewpoint. Right. And that is, and that, you know, that observation was being made in 1967, and he already saw what was going to happen as a result yeah. Yeah. of the psychedelic culture. Yes, and it's been multiplied uh, exponentially since he wrote those words for sure. Right. You know, there, there was one more thing I did want to mention real yeah. quick. Please do. You know, we were warned, quote unquote, warned by uh, Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley would mm. go all over. He would go on uh, Mike Wallace's TV show. He would he gave that famous speech at Berkeley. Yeah. Um, and these guys did a lot of warning, just like President Eisenhower. You know, warned people about the military-industrial complex and the mm-hmm. technocratic elite. Mm-hmm. Did you know that both? Aldous Huxley and President Eisenhower, well, they were giving us these quote-unquote warnings. You know, people people put a lot of uh, emphasis on both these gentlemen as being some, you know, uh, you know, great uh, 
like I said, you know, guys doing a good deed because uh, they care about you so much. Mm-hmm. You know that both of these gentlemen were having meetings with all of the people that, uh, who proliferated the drug culture, who created the drug culture, um, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the anthropologist, yes. uh, one in particular that uh, Jan Irvin talks about is R. Gordon Watson. Mm, yeah. And both, both Eisenhower and Huxley, while they were giving these warnings of, of both of these things coming into view, they were actively participating in meetings with all of the people who were actually making those things come into fruition. And so I think a lot of this is, is about they, that you're going to get a warning as to what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and you're going to get it from the people who are actually putting it into culture. <laughs> wow. And they're not, they're not warning you because... They're not warning you because they they uh, they they care about you. They're warning you as kind of a like Roman maxim type thing, like, mm. a buyer beware. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. We may have to uh, pick up that thread again and and explore that a little bit more uh, next time, John. Because that boy is that the is that the conscience crying out? Uh, to do the right thing, uh, even though you're part of the process of implementing these things, there's a lot we could talk about there with the psyche for sure. Yeah, that that might even venture over into uh, Jay Dyer's area once again, talking about what Twilight language, is, mm, yeah, re- revelation revelation of the method, and yes, you have to tell people what you're going to do. It's kind of an esoteric witchcraft type thing as well, where you mm-hmm. tell people what you're going to do before you do it. That's right. And if the people the people aren't smart enough to pick up on it, then too bad for them. Too bad for them. Yeah, that's right. And we see a lot of that in the movies too, for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, a lot of symbolism yes, and sir. yeah, we sure do. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is, John. But that's that's good stuff, and and uh, I, I think folks need to need to hear it, and then they need to research it and investigate it for themselves. So, it's like I tell people all the time, John, right from the pulpit. Listen, you don't have to believe a word I say. the The evidence is out there. The facts are out there. Go research it yourself and see for yourself, and then you'll become convinced that what I'm saying is true. Absolutely. John, thank you so much, my friend. I, I appreciate the conversation as always. I appreciate it as well, and um, I'm looking forward to doing it again soon. I'll circle back with you, and we'll get that scheduled. God bless you, my friend. God bless you. Have a good day. You do the same. Thank you. Song Eagle Radio is a production of Transforming Word Ministries and is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. You may subscribe to the show on iTunes, Follow us on Facebook where you can discuss this episode and follow Soaring Eagle Radio on Twitter at Soaring Eagle Rad and listen to every episode from our website, www.soaringeagleradio.com. The opening audio montage collection was created by Micah 68 Productions. Visit them on the internet at www.mika68.com for more information. Friends, remember the Apostle Paul's admonition to the believers meeting in Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm your host, Mike Spaulding. Thank you for joining us today for this edition of Soaring Eagle Radio. Thanks for tuning in today to the Soaring Eagle Radio Program. For more information about the show, write us at Soaring Eagle Radio, 682 West Grand Avenue, Lima, Ohio, 45801. You may also contact Mike directly by email at the following address, Pastor Mike at WOH.RR.com. God bless you today as you seek Him. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details.